This episode of Madison Story Slam is sponsored by Ale Asylum and by the Footlights program by Marcus Promotions. Go to www.footlights.com for more info. Hey, welcome to the Madison Story Slam podcast. It is I, your host, Adam Rosted, coming at you with a special Long Slam episode on Friday, November 10th at the High Noon Saloon. The podcast Risk is coming to do a show in Madison, and it's going to be amazing. Risk is a lot like what we do, but the stories tend to be a little bit more risky, hence the name. On this episode, I am talking to Kevin Allison, who does that show. You can find out more at risk-show.com for all the good stuff. Also, if you go to our website, www.madisonstoryslam.com, you can buy our best of CD called These Are Their Stories, 11 of the best stories we've ever had on Story Slam. Without further ado, I want you to sit back and relax and enjoy this conversation with Kevin about storytelling. All right, so uh, Madison Story Slam listeners, I have on the phone with me on the podcast Kevin Allison, who uh, you created Risk, is that right? That was your brainchild? That is right, yeah. I started Risk in the first podcast episode was October of 2009. And, you know, at that time we were just doing shows in New York City. Uh, And what happened was it just very, you know, gradually just became more and more and more popular. The podcast now, there are some months when it will get up to 2.5 million downloads in a month. Wow. So, yeah, it's been a long, gradual climb, but it has just become more and more popular all the time. Yeah, you know, um, it's interesting. So you're you're almost 10 years in on the podcast, and I am... I want to say four years in on mine. And what's interesting is even just in four years, like you keep learning more and more tricks for the podcast. I'm sure going on 10, you've learned quite a bit on how to attract listeners and how to even, even like little audio tricks. I don't know if you run your own boards or if you have an engineer. Yes. No, I have an episode editor who lives in Colorado. So we rarely see each other face to face. Wow. Uh, but we, yeah, but we talk to each other on Skype on a daily basis. And, you know, we have, at this point, we've got people working for us in Los Angeles, here in New York. Um, he's out there in Colorado. So, so we're a little bit spread out now. But there's various people who do various things for us, and yeah, it, it's a real blessing. The, the thing about Risk is the kinds of stories people share on the show are so revealing, so intimate, so kind of unlike what you're bound to hear on national public radio or yeah. most other podcasts even, that it's... It, 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 people are quite passionate about it. The, the fans are quite passionate about it. And the people who end up working for us, uh, you know, they come to us, most of them, because they were first fans of the show. So it makes a big difference, you know, when the people who are pitching in really kind of love 
the show, you know? Yeah. Uh, so for any of my listeners who don't know what risk is, as we're just sitting here talking about risk, can you just let them know and like why I would have you on my podcast to promote risk? Yeah, because risk is the idea was I was on a sketch comedy show called the state Mm -hmm. in the nineties on MTV. And so it was very big, broad, cartoonish sketch comedy, a lot of it. And, you know, when the group broke up in 1996, I spent the next 12 years not sure how to be on stage, you know, how to express myself, what what format to use. I, I continued trying to be these crazy, kooky sketch comedy characters up on stage. Yeah. But it was Michael Leon Black, who was also a member of the stage, who said to me, I think you should just drop the act and start speaking as yourself, tell your own true stories. And I said, oh, but my own true stories are so filthy and bizarre (laughs) and embarrassing and sometimes really spiritual and intellectual. I said, it just seems like it would be too risky. And he said, well, that's the word. If it feels risky, then you're probably opening up in a way that will make people want to open up to you. So the very next week after he gave me that advice, I tried telling my own true story on stage for the first time at a storytelling show in Chelsea. It was I told the story of the first time I tried prostituting myself when I was like 22 years old. (laughs) And, And at the time, I was absolutely terrified to be sharing this story because it really felt so vulnerable. So, you know, so intimate to be talking about this stuff, but it really was like night and day. I felt like I had really touched a chord with the audience that I had not felt like I'd felt on stage in, in a long, long, long time. So I decided that's, that's the thing. I, I started looking into what else was around. And of course, the biggest things around at that time were the moth and this American life, yep. as far as you know, things that were somewhat similar. Uh, but the thing of it is, you know, it, Ira Glass, I don't know if he still has to say this on This American Life, but at the time he would have to preface a story sometimes by saying something like, I have to warn listeners beforehand, our next story acknowledges the existence of sex. Yeah, there's there's another podcast called uh, Adults Reading Things They they Wrote as Kids, and he does that on every single story, even with, with cuss words. Like if somebody says shit, they're like, I have to warn you that... This story has does have yeah. cuss words and acknowledges the existence of a penis, and and I'm always like, we're all adults. Listen, like, I see the express the explicit warning on the podcast when I download it. Yeah, yeah, it's because you know there are you know formats like National Public Radio that they go so far and wide, and so many people are listening to that programming at say two o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday when they're driving their children to school or to you know, soccer practice or whatever. Um, and, you know, so, so they have to be super, super cautious about it. Well, we realized, I realized right off the bat when I was doing that research, I was like, oh, all I have to do is create a show that has a similar idea behind it. That is that people are sharing, you know, 
10 to 20 minute long stories. Sometimes they're even an hour, an hour and a half long, but most of them are about somewhere between 10 and 20 minutes. And the person is encouraged to take a look at a peak experience in their life, you know, when they hit rock bottom or when they had a great breakthrough or when they had a mortifying embarrassment or, or a terrible trauma, something that they really, really cared about and were quite emotionally jolted by or uh, just fascinated by. Yeah. And we, we, we have them really zero in on that moment and try to recreate it with as much detail as they possibly can, really getting into the look on someone's face, the actual words someone said, the feeling you had in your guts when such and such a thing happened. And to kind of like, like you would in therapy, or like a therapist would encourage you to do, to kind of re-experience it with us, and then kind of make what you will out of it. So... A typical evening of a Risk live show, because we do these live shows and we put out the podcast, and the podcast sometimes has one-on-one stories that are just shared with me in my apartment, right? Mm -hmm. But a typical episode of the show and a typical evening of the live show will have one or two absolutely uproariously hilarious stories and one or two really scary or traumatic or profound stories, and maybe one or so just pure, beautiful, kind of tear-jerking or really sweet story. Um, So it kind of goes all over the map. But the whole idea is that people are speaking with a level of bold honesty and candidness and intimacy that you're not used to hearing elsewhere. Yeah. So... The, the fans are just super passionate about it. You ask, like, what, you know, how, how did we get from zero to where we are now as far as listeners go? A lot of it was that people really got the concept of the show early on. They were like, oh, wow, this has some real energy behind it. I get the philosophy of this show, and I get, I'm really into what I'm hearing here, the energy here. Um, So people, so the listeners started pitching us their stories. And that was really an interesting turning point because we started off where I was focusing mostly on my my comedy friends. So early episodes of the show, there's a lot of, yeah, there's people like Margaret Cho and Sarah Silverman. So at the beginning, it was more like uh, whatever that show is on Comedy Central, uh, I don't remember what it's called. But oh, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I forget what it's called. I can't well. believe that this is happening. Here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I mean, it was always conceived to be the show it is now. Yeah. But it was really once the audience was coming to us with their own stories that it actually became what it is now. Yeah. You know? so, so, yeah, it, it's, it's been a heck of a ride. And what we do... When we tour, so so the show, the live show happens once a month in New York and once a month in Los Angeles. And then in the middle of the month, you know, in the early weeks of the month, we'll uh, travel to other places in the country. So what we'll do is on the podcast for the past few months, I've been saying, hey, Madison, Wisconsin, we are coming to town uh, let's see. In this case, we're coming to town on November 10th. At the High, High Noon Saloon. Saloon. Yep. Yeah. 
And so I've been announcing to people, hey, our theme that night is huge, the word huge, so that could mean darn near anything, yep. you know? Uh, and and then people reach out to me, they, they can write in to pitches at com, and they'll send in their story ideas, and we'll choose the four that we like the very most and really work with those people to help them prepare. So sometimes people are practice performers or writers or, you know, stage directors or whatever, you know, people in the arts. And then sometimes not at all. Sometimes they, they have never stepped foot on, on stage before. So those people will take a little bit more coaching, you know, sure. we'll, we yeah. really have to like help them out beforehand. But oftentimes those people have the most extraordinary stories, you know, uh, because the reason they were attracted to us in the first place was just like, well, I've always been looking for a place to share about that time that I was trapped in the mountain for five days straight, you know, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I find those, those, uh, so, you know, I, I do this storytelling thing as well. And, uh, in fact, we just had our monthly event last night and, um, we are much more open mic than risk is like, we don't, you know, go through the stories beforehand and whatever. Like if you come and want to tell a story, you can tell one. And, uh, you know, we have our regulars that are there every month, but it's oftentimes what I always say is stories beget stories. And so when you come and you hear a couple of good stories and you have a couple of drinks, that's when you're like, Oh, you know what? That reminds me. I could tell this story. And more often than not, it's those stories that I go, Oh wow. There really is something profound here that like, this person has needed to share this for so long and they finally got to uh, one that comes to mind is we had a trans woman who was at the the event and she came up and told this story about before she was out and uh, before she had gone through transition and but having a lot of women's underwear and stuff. And she was just saying how her roommates one night got drunk and and put her panties all over the place and how damaging it was to her and like whenever i hear stories like that where somebody gets up and just like i always say they just rip open their chest and show you their heart i'm like fuck like that like wow i like i just can't imagine burying myself that way to a a group of 150 people and so it's always so impressive to me you know our motto is we build community through storytelling and i think i said to you in, in in an email that I think what storytelling does in a live uh, venue like that is it levels the playing field because it makes everybody go, oh, I'm not super fucked up or I'm not the only person who's had bad shit happen to me or hilarious stuff. And so it, I always say that it, it, as the storyteller, as the performer on stage, you have a direct connection with each individual, not just the audience, but like a line to each person individually. And, and I think that's kind of the magic of storytelling. I think so, too. I am absolutely, you know, I'll give you another example that's similar to what you just said. Like, very recently, uh, we had on the show a woman named Melanie Hamlet did a radio-style story with me. That That's a case where she sits down with me in my apartment sure. and tells just one-on-one to me an intimate story, and then we, we cut me out, and then we put music and sound design behind it. And it was about this very violent and abusive relationship she was in where she ended up raped and, you know, he was physically threatening her and all sorts of coercion and manipulation and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And it was 
an incredibly emotional and an incredibly intimate story. But what was fascinating about it was that she was also able to unpack the compassion she felt toward this man, even to this day. Wow. Uh, which, which, which she felt was the riskiest part of the story, to, to not simply make this man a monster, but to actually try to share a little bit of what she thought might have been going through his head and heart in the mental illness that he was suffering through. So she put that story out there. And within a week, a man contacted her on you know, Facebook or Twitter or so, somewhere yeah. where risk was being talked about. And he said, I used to be that guy. I have spent 10 years in therapy for abusing my wife. I uh, have been medicated for bipolar, and I have been working for a decade now on fixing myself and making sure I never harm a woman again. And she said, you should share your story on risk, too. Yeah. So she really encouraged him to. And then that became the episode that's called The Monster and the Man, where that's another hour-long episode where he shares his story of the tremendous regret he has about the way that he treated his wife and how he's tried to heal since then. So it really is what you were just saying, kind of remarkable how stories will resonate with people or trigger things in people that make them realize, oh, wow, I actually, you know, because people all the time will say, oh, well, I don't really have any stories. And they think that, that I mean, oh, you, you, oh, you've never climbed Mount Everest or been attacked by a shark or whatever. It's not about that. It's about the things that have happened to you or that you have done that you really cared about yep. or, or that really kind of bugged you and, and exploring those. So, yeah, it is it is quite remarkable how people will say, oh, I don't have a story. And then they'll hear an episode of Risk or they'll attend a live show and they'll be like, oh, no, I've got a story or two. <laughs> like, the, you know, the, something someone has said will have, will have taken them off in another direction. And you know what's also fascinating is People also love risk because they get to hear from people of totally different walks of life. Yep. Someone who spent a lot of time in prison or someone who's been homeless or like we have a lot of kinky stories on risk because sex is something that normally people don't feel free to talk about elsewhere. Sure. And so people will they'll write in to me all the time. They'll be like, oh, wow, I'm a straight guy and I consider myself vanilla. I've never prostituted myself or done anything like I heard in that story. But man, the emotions that person described just totally got something going on inside me and opened up this memory of this argument I got into with my dad when I was in, in high school. You know, like, it's just fascinating the way that these things uh, can open stuff up in people. So it, 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 like, it really is interesting. It, like, awakens something in people because, you know, it's not necessarily just like, a reminder it's 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 oftentimes I, at least for me when when i hear storytellers that suddenly i'm like oh i do have a story about this it's like stuff that i don't want to use the word re repressed but it's stuff that i have like hidden away and just don't think about and then suddenly i hear a yeah. story and i'm like 
oh wow you know what like if i really stopped to actually think about it that was like profound and it is something it was a profound experience and i should share it so it's yeah you're definitely right it definitely opens something up and awakens uh, stuff in people so yeah there's also an interesting phenomenon that i've noticed in all the stories that i've shared especially the ones where i had to go back to being you know in the sixth grade or something like that where I'll I'll think, well, I can't remember all that was happening that week or why I even met, how I even met that person or, or you know, I'll, I'll think that I can't remember all that much. But then when I do, just start to put the little pieces I do remember in, in the right order, little bits of memories will start filling in. You know, I'll be like, oh, of course. Course. It was so and so who introduced me to so and so. Yeah. Or, oh, I remember why we were there that day. You know what I mean? Like, like it, it's kind of fascinating how the the mind is built to make narrative sense of things. Sure. Yep. So oftentimes you 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 don't think you remember things, but then it does start to come back when you just start meditating on it. Yeah. Well, and then, and you know, like you said, the mind is built to, to put it together in a narrative and those stories from when you were a kid, your child mind only understands so much of the narrative. So that's how the memory Mm. is in your head. And then, so then when you really start to think about it as an adult, you go, Oh, this is completely wrong. Like, yes, this happened, but like I can now as an adult rationalize why that adult made that uncomfortable statement and like all that kind of weird stuff, you know, that, that when you really look back on your memories, you go, Oh, that was actually pretty fucked up. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Well, I just recorded one yesterday. A young woman came to my house yesterday and we recorded this story about how when she was five years old, she woke up at six in the morning. One morning, a, a, a man had broken into their house and, there were all sorts of police cars around and there was, you know, canines were, you know, it it was total, total chaos. And there was a lot of violence breaking out all over. And she did such a beautiful job in telling the story from her five-year-old perspective. Yeah, Like a lot of people, when they first tell a story, it doesn't occur to them to do that, but she really just went, beat by beat what she remembers as a five-year-old. And then later in the story, she unpacked, okay, so here's now what I understand was really going on, as opposed to what my five-year-old mind was thinking was going on. (laughs) Man, that's crazy. It's just so crazy how our brains are. Um, I have a question for you. Uh, What do you think makes a good story? Like, uh, so, so like I said, our, our storytellers are much less prepared than yours are most of the time. We have a handful of storytellers who, you know, sit at home and practice for days before, before they come out. But um, a lot of them just get on stage and, and then their story might fall a little flat with the crowd. And so, so they think, mm-hmm. I, I just got to keep talking until, you know, because their story is so personal to them and means so much to them. And, and so, like, if I just keep talking and, and give more information and more information, maybe the crowd will understand how important and impactful this story is. But what do you think makes a good story? I think there's a few things. One is to know how to zero in on the moments that were most meaningful and most emotionally loaded, right? Yep. It's really tricky to figure out, okay... 
there, you know, like, like you don't want your story to like every now and then someone will, will be like, okay, I want to, I want to tell about my 20 year struggle with alcohol or something like that. Sure. And we can, we can deal with those stories, but it's much, much better if a person comes in with a story of, I'd like to tell about the Saturday night that I lost my virginity so that they can really zero in on a piece of dialogue that was exchanged, uh, you know, the way the two bodies came together and felt and, and looks in people's eyes and kind of get into those moments that were most affecting to you and take us into slow-mo and really like unpack that people spend way too much time there are two modes in which the text of a story is working it's either narrative summary or it's scenic detail if anyone's interested in this i have a lecture called what every risk storyteller should know and you can find it on risks page on SoundCloud. It's a 50-minute talk I give about what really brings a story alive, and it's to avoid telling and to go into showing, to avoid narrative summary and to have as much scenic detail as you can. And in order to get to figure out what scenic detail to include, you first have to figure out, well, what were the scenic moments that are most worth unpacking and really showing yeah um so there's there's that but there is also a, a performative thing absolutely and I hate to use the word per performative because you you, uh, you you don't want people to be acting per se but you do want people to learn to relax and to allow the emotions of the story to show in the way you're using your voice. Yep. You know, uh, some some people just have this habit of saying everything at the same tone, at the same pace, at the same rhythm. Whereas usually, if you're talking about something really emotional or hilarious or really screwed up that happened to you, there will be moments where it's appropriate to just really slow down. And other moments where it's appropriate to really speed up, you know, where it, it, it's more it's more allowing your voice and your psyche to imbue what you're talking about with the emotion that you're feeling, you know, allowing that emotion to show. People are always saying to me when they do risk, oh, my God, I'm so terrified about breaking down crying. And I always say to them. That would be one of the best things. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the same way. I am the same way. <laughs> yeah, so, so allowing the emotion to show is perfectly fine. And risk audiences are incredibly understanding and supportive when stuff like that happens. If a person forgets where they are in the story, the audience will, you know, yell out where they were and, and support them to, you know... You know, make sure that they can get back on, back on track. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, it's not at all like stand-up comedy where often an audience has their arms crossed and is like, "Okay, make us laugh." Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I actually make that that comparison very... all the time. That like storytelling events, it's not stand-up comedy where the audience comes expecting to be performed for. It's I find that the audience comes wanting to partake in an experience not not 
you know, they're active in some way. It's 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 kind of hard to define, but the audience is an active participant. Yes, it feels a little bit more like a conversation. Yes, I say that all that the time. It, yeah, yeah, in that the storyteller is really speaking into the listening in the room, and every now and then you'll you'll have a storyteller say something like. Oh my gosh, this woman in the third row is totally getting what I'm saying right now, or something like that, where, you know, the, the, what, what's happening in the room comes through even on the podcast. You know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the other thing I often yeah, say yeah. is that I, I think a good story, uh, you know, like I said, I, I've got people who get up and just keep talking to try and give as much information as they can. And I will oftentimes, uh, during one of our breaks during the night, will go to that person and say, hey, you did a great job. You know, it takes a lot of guts to get up on stage and share anything at all. And But I'll say, hey, but maybe next time, think about not sharing as much. I, I think part of a good story is deciding what not to share and, and letting the... I think part of the reason um, the audience is an active participant is because you kind of let them fill in the blanks. Like, for instance, I have a story that's a short story about how I got hit by a semi truck and and I can tell that story mm. about five minutes and and I and the way I tell it is a hundred percent true that I got hit by a semi truck but when I say that what most story or what more what most audience members hear is smack I got smashed by a semi truck uh, I, mm-hmm. I I leave out the fact that I was driving a short bus and uh, during a left turn from an exit ramp a semi scraped along the edge of me. So it, while it's 100% true that I got hit by a semi truck, you, you know, to say it like that is much better than, than to say, you know, I, uh, I at, at five miles an hour had a semi scrape against me. So I, I just always tell them it, it's not quite lying, but it's just letting the audience fill in the blanks uh, in the same yeah. way that maybe a, an author might do. Yeah, there's a fella named... Uh I'm always forgetting his name. Um, he he mapped out in uh, an article on Slate, I think it was, the uh, four lies of storytelling. And it, it, it's just that it's very common. Matthew Dix is his name. Okay. It's very common for, for us to omit some details if they if they don't really add to the emotional impact. Mm-hmm. Um, to to kind of make some assumptions, like, for example, if you can't quite remember what kind of car it was or, you know, how nearby sure. that neighbor's house was or something, you, you, you know, you can fudge some of those details. You can compress some of the things, for example, like, you know, having it happen in three days rather than five, or or change the progression even. There's a story we just recorded for our Halloween episode about a young woman who was a psychiatrist, a nurse psychiatrist working with severely mentally disturbed people, uh, where she walks us through two instances where she really thinks that there was something beyond medicine happening sure. where she really feels that there was something some spiritual disturbance there hmm. along the lines of like that you see in the film the exorcist yeah um but 
But the second instance she described was not quite as scary as the first one. So we just changed the order. So it's, it's, it, yes, it is lying to a certain extent. But the emotional truth of the story is still there. Yeah, you know, I would I would say it like this. I would say, uh, you know, all of my stories are full of truth, not necessarily full of fact. Yeah, yeah. Does that make yeah. sense? And, 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 and you can't blame yourself for that either because the brain works that way too. They say that if you put three random words on three different index cards in front of a person – that person's brain will instantly start trying to find a narrative way that those words make sense together. So when a per- you ask a person to remember the day that they got hit by the car or whatever, um, they will have some memories that are super vivid. And then some of the memories that start filling in once they start thinking you know, closer about it, they might just be dreamlike tricks of the mind, yeah. you know. But if it if it feels right, if it feels to you like, well, this is true to my whole emotional sense of the experience, then it's fine to go with it. it, it it's cases where, and I've been in this position before. It's cases where I wanted to end a story on a great like punchline that I'm just totally making up, or. When I when I find myself thinking, oh my God, it would have been so much better if if this had been behind that door than what was actually behind that door, and and, and I attempted to make something up. If you know in your gut that you are making up a lie out of whole cloth, the audience is likely to start to feel that too. Yep. So that's venturing into the danger zone. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I, I've I've so enjoyed this conversation, uh, just because on a much smaller scale, I'm doing what you're doing, and you you understand all of the ins and outs of this, and and the intricacies, and the interesting parts, and the shitty parts. Um, but I don't want to keep you. Too, I don't know how much time you've got. Uh, yeah, I should go pretty soon because I have a, a show to be doing this evening. Oh <laughs> wow! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, then I I don't want to keep you. Um, I will tell our listeners that if they want to learn more about storytelling, you do have a is it a is it a school like a brick and mortar school or is it online? It's online. Our school is called it's at the story studio.com or I'm sorry, .org. I'm looking at it now, yeah. Dot, dot .org. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. storystudio.org. And what we do is we have like online courses you can take we do a lot of corporate workshops nowadays with people like, you know, Google and Pfizer and Citibank, places yeah. like that. Uh, but we also do like one-on-one training over Skype, and there's a lot of options there. Um, if people want to just like dip their toe in and see what some of our education is like, there's that thing I mentioned before, which is uh, what every risk storyteller should know on our SoundCloud page. Yeah, I will. I will post that there. to our Facebook. Oh, that's fabulous. And and anyone can find anything they want about Risk, the podcast, at risk-show.com. That also is a place where you can find out where we're appearing live. So, you know, for example, tickets to the Madison show are right there at risk-show.com. And again, that's uh, Friday, November 10th at the High Noon Saloon for all you Madison storytelling listeners. 
Uh, hey, Kevin, thank you so much for being on. I have one last question for you that I ask all my guests. And I want to yeah. know, who is the most interesting person in your phone? Oh, my gosh. Jeez Louise. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've had a lot of uh, crazy answers. I've had Quincy Jones. Uh, somebody said Quincy Jones. Um, I think Kevin Farley told me Adam Sandler. Uh, but then some people are just like, you know, my mom. My mom's really interesting. Or, or their college roommate. So. <laughs> well, it's funny because I was just scrolling through uh, just this morning, and I was like, oh, my God, I forgot that I have John Hamm's information. Oh, wow. Um, you know, one person who is I'm, – I, I find it really rewarding that he often just – he's been on risk before, uh, Dan Savage. Yeah. And every now and then he'll just text me because he's just heard an episode of Risk and say – holy cow, I was so moved to hear that third story on today's episode. Man, that's wow, got to feel really good. Appreciate yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a fellow named Christopher Ryan who wrote the, the bestseller called Sex at Dawn, which is all about uh, the history of polyamory and non-monogamy throughout the history of the human species. Yeah. And he, he told an unbelievable story on Risk one time about he was in his early 20s. He was visiting the Mayan ruins in uh, Mexico, and it was um, it was midnight around. So the, the, and there was no moon, so it was pitch black out. And he was on LSD, and he got stung by a poisonous um, scorpion. <laughs> So he he had to go while tripping on LSD. He had to go like <laughs> because of course he running did running <laughs> through the jungle, <laughs> running through the jungle at night with no moon out, desperately searching for like a witch doctor or something like that to like give him an antidote. <laughs> uh, and that that so yeah so so he's just a brilliant guy, and uh, it's cool to have people like that in your phone because they've done risk, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Kevin, I got to yeah. tell you, I love the show. I love Risk. Uh, when I'm having a bad day, I will put it on because I know there's going to be good stories. But then also, I got to tell you, you have the most infectious laugh that I have ever heard in my entire life. And I know that if I put on Risk and listen to the intro alone, I'm going to smile and my bad day will be better. So I thank oh, you for that. Awesome. That's so great to hear. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, that's fabulous. Again, thank you so much for uh, doing this phone interview for me, and uh, I hope the Madison show goes well. I can't wait. I'll see you there. Sounds good. All right, Madison Story Slam. That is going to do it for Kevin and I. Be sure to go to risk-show.com and thestorystudio.org for more info on everything that Kevin's doing and what he's got going on with stories. He's really a wonderful guy, very nice and intelligent. Loved having him on the show. Hey, our next Story Slam is Saturday, November 18th, and the theme then is going to be hungover. So come tell and hear great stories about all the mornings that we wish we had didn't have to go through that made us say we'd never drink again. And maybe some stories about how we got there. All right, guys. Been a pleasure. We'll see you next time. I love you. Be well. <laughs>